Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Have you ever imagined a modern analog for the conversion of Paul, who went from hating Christians to one of the pivotal leaders of the church? How would you describe it? Teaching team member Caleb Click leads off the new series, Radical Renewal, with this sermon entitled, When Wolves Become Sheep, which covers Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning, Perimeter Church. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Acts chapter 9. Uh, most of you probably have better memories than mine, so if you, you may remember this, but last January and February, we started a series in the book of Acts that we said we were gonna come back to. Well, today is that day. We are picking up exactly where we left off, left off in Acts chapter nine, starting in verse one. And if you don't remember what took place in those first eight chapters, the Lord has been faithfully keeping his promise to the church in Acts 1.8. The church is bearing witness to the gospel in Jerusalem and in Judea and in chapter eight, even to Samaria. And God has been blessing that ministry over and over and over again so that the church is growing and multiplying. But there remains this question. How is God going to take this gospel message and bring it not just to Judea and Samaria, but even to the very ends of the earth. Acts 9, Acts 9 is God's answer. And it's an unlikely one because it centers on the conversion of a man who seems like the least likely of all converts. He's not a friend of Jesus or of his church. He's an enemy of it in every single way. And yet, the conversion of this man, a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we now more famously know as Paul the Apostle, it's the reason that we are worshiping here today in this room. Because whether you've realized this or not, we're the ends of the earth. And God, he has been faithful to that promise even to today. Here's what it says, starting in verse one of chapter nine. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is God's word, let's pray. Gracious Father, would you take this text and Lord, would you unfold to our hearing, but more than that, to our hearts, Lord, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that is presented to us therein and through your spirit, Lord, would you not only give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it, but hearts to receive it. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. Last week, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Mary Neal, and I, uh, we finished what has been a several-month-long project of reading through C.S. Lewis's the, Dawn, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Chronicles of Narnia. And for me, it was probably my 20th reading of that book. And for Mary Neal, it was her very first. And I, I love Lewis. I, I have read him over and over again, sometimes the same books over and over again, like the Dawn Treader, because he, he has this rare quality where he can capture the imagination of a young child like my daughter, but he can also capture the imagination of an adult like me. And he can take these complex truths about the Christian faith and make them comprehensible even to the most hardened of skeptics. There's a reason that he's a spiritual hero to so many of us. But we so often forget where Lewis started. Because Lewis, by his own admission, he was not exactly an eager convert to Jesus Christ. By his own admission, Lewis was a man who he did not want anything to do with God. In fact, he did not believe that God existed. And yet, though he resisted God with all of his might over the course of several decades, there was this one problem. The God he didn't believe existed. The God he wanted nothing to do with. That God seemed to want something to do with C.S. Lewis. And it didn't matter where he went. Down every corridor, he could hear the echo of God's footsteps, God's hands hemming him in. It didn't matter what book he read or what friends he surrounded himself with or what philosophy he studied. Everywhere he turned, there Jesus was. There was the unwanted heat of God's breath on the back of his neck. And as decade unrolled into decade, finally, Lewis fell to his knees and became, as he put it, and surprised by joy, the most reluctant convert in all of England. The first step in what ultimately ended in his full conversion to Jesus Christ. And looking back on that moment, Lewis wrote this. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depth of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. I love that description. Because Lewis captures the story of grace that God has played out in the life of every single believer of this God who on the one hand possesses irresistible power that can subdue even the most hostile of enemies, and yet on the other hand possesses this incredible mercy that wields that power not to destroy his enemies, but to save them. Every day, 
We wake up to some new news that seems to proclaim Christianity's inevitable demise. The Chinese government threatening believers with torture unless they'll recant their faith. The rising tide of secularism that's supposed to plunge us into darkness sometime in the near future. We get news like we saw last week that church membership in the United States has fallen for the first time in 70 years below 50%. And there's this piece of us. When we hear that news, to be tempted to believe that maybe Jesus and his church are a fragile, frail thing. That Jesus and his church are like a candle in the wind where the slightest gust might extinguish that wick. And everything, it is constantly in danger. To that fear, Lewis would say, I don't think you're seeing Jesus rightly. Because the Jesus who chased me down every corridor, he's not a Jesus who needs protection from his enemies. He's a Jesus whose enemies need protection from him. Not necessarily because he intends to destroy them, but because he might do to them that one thing they fear most of all. He might make them his friends, even members of his family. It's what God does with Saul. And it's the story that is played out in the life of the church over and over and over again in one that Jesus will continue to retell and to redo until the day that he returns. And here's how we know that's true. Because here's who Jesus is. Jesus first, he is the one who saves even people as lost as Saul. Saul, Saul's as lost as lost can be. He's an enemy of God by every human metric you can bring up. When we last saw Saul in chapter eight, he's nodding his head at the appro in approval at the murder of Stephen, and that nod of the head, that approval, it overflows into a full-fledged persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Saul is going from door to door, and he's dragging men and women out of their homes, probably in front of their crying children, and he is taking them and throwing them in prison where they will be tried and possibly killed. And when we get to chapter eight, that same animosity, it is still alive and well in Saul. And in fact, it may even be worse than it was before. Verse one says he is breathing threats and murder against the church. Every inhale and exhale of his lungs, it is hostility against Jesus and all of his followers. And he is so intent that this church not only be chased from Jerusalem, but that it would be destroyed, that he goes to the chief priests and he asks for letters, giving him the authority to go to another city, the city of Damascus, and to do in that city what he did in Jerusalem, drag out men and women from their homes in front of their crying children so that he can arrest them, throw them in prison, and eventually have them killed. You know, the only illustration I can think of that adequately captures Saul's heart towards Jesus and his church is my daughter Alice's knee last fall. As a lot of you know, my daughter 
last fall developed pain in her knee that reduced her from a, a kid who was running and jumping and playing like every other three-year-old you can imagine to one who couldn't even stand. And the doctors at first, they thought it was a tumor. And then they realized after they opened up her knee that it wasn't a tumor, it was a staph infection. And as soon as they realized that, the plan of action got real simple real quick. It was, we are going to pump your little girl full of antibiotics until every last shred of that contagion is dead. And I, they told Mal and I, they said, if she starts to improve physically, if she starts to stand up and run around, you don't stop giving her that antibiotic until we have confirmed that every cell, every tiny bit of it, it is completely and totally removed from her system. That's the attitude of Saul to the church. He doesn't see a harmless sect to be tolerated. He sees a contagion that must be eradicated. He sees blasphemous people who are worshiping a crucified Messiah, something that is a contradiction in terms to a Pharisee like Saul. And so in Saul's eyes, the church that has been scattered from Jerusalem, it is a church that must be chased and a church must be, that must be destroyed a church of which not even a remnant can be left remaining. And so he travels 140 miles, a six-day journey to Damascus so that he can find believers there and imprison and kill them too. This is not a man who is wondering what the truth might be. This is not a man who is wondering if he is actually on the path of righteousness. This is a man convinced that he knows the truth and the path of righteousness, it is the path that he is on. A likely convert to the Christian faith, Saul of Tarsus is not. But right here, at noon, as he is nearing the gates of Damascus, breathing threats and murder against the church and preparing to destroy her to the best of his ability, Saul runs into the one person he least expects to see. And as he later says in Philippians 3, he grabbed hold of me. A light begins to shine on Saul that makes even the sun look dark. And Saul falls from his horse and he falls into the dirt. And as he is lying there in the dirt, he hears a voice speak from the light saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And with a mouthful of dust, Saul says, who are you, Lord? And we need to be clear on this. He knows it's God. That's why he calls him Lord. And as any good Jew would, Jew would know, this is something, this experience of the light breaking down on him and falling on your face in awe at what you're experiencing. This is the pattern when God is revealing himself to his people. It's what happened to Moses and Ezekiel and to Isaiah. Saul knows what's happening. The confusion for him is this. He thinks he's serving that God. And that God just said, no, you're persecuting me. And then the voice says the one thing Saul definitely doesn't want to hear. Who am I? 
I'm Jesus, whom you have been persecuting. Put yourself in Saul's shoes for just a moment. Can you imagine the terror that he must have felt? Because the false Messiah who was crucified on a tree that you are convinced is dead, who is a false Messiah and one who to worship him, it would be blasphemy. Guess what? He's not dead. He's very much alive. And not only is he very much alive, but oh, he's God. And the people, the people that you thought were blasphemous liars who needed to be eradicated before they infected other people with their false belief, they were actually the people of God. And you arrested and you killed them. Which means the blasphemer and the liar, it's not them, it's you. Can you imagine the terror that must have bathed every corner of his soul at the weight of that revelation. And yet, there is this beautiful, glorious mercy of Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop talking. He burns Saul's world to ash with one sentence. And then in the very next, he builds a newer and better one for him. Look at what he says. But rise. Get out of the dust. And enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Saul thinks his life is over. Jesus says, no. Your life is just beginning. I haven't come to destroy you. I've come to save you, to make my enemy my friend, to take you out of death and to bring you into my resurrection life. I am the one who has loved you before you were ever born and the cross that I bore, the cross you despise, it is a cross I bore for you. Get up. And Saul, when he enters Damascus, it says a man who's been blinded and a man who's been humbled and a man for whom absolutely everything has changed. Not because he went looking for Jesus, but because Jesus, the one who saves the lost, Jesus went looking for Saul. This is what Jesus does, isn't it? I mean, as I look around this room, Every single one of us in our stories of conversion and the way that Jesus brought us to himself, every one of our stories is unique because Jesus deals with us as individuals. He knows what we're like. He knows what we need. So there are some of you here who your conversion, it was like Saul's. It was a sudden thing where Jesus broke into your life and you, you did not see it coming. Others of you, maybe your stories was more like C.S. Lewis's story where it was this slow and steady pursuit where Jesus finally brought you to your knees, first reluctantly and then gratefully. Others of you, you just don't know a day in your life when the presence of Jesus hasn't been a welcome one. 
And your story, it's a lot more like John the Baptist or before him, King David, and that the Lord made you to trust on him from your mother's womb. They're all unique, but they are bound together by this one reality. None of us, none of us went looking for Jesus. Jesus, Jesus came looking for us as the one who seeks and saves the lost. The story of Saul, it should remind us of our own stories and it should fill our hearts with grateful awe at the work that Jesus has done for us, but it should also communicate something else to us too. It tells us that there is no one, there is no one so lost that Christ can't find them. I know that in this room, there are people here who maybe you've heard the gospel You've heard of a Jesus who loves sinners and saves them and forgives them. You've had friends earnestly tell you that there is one who can make you new. And you've heard all those things and you've wanted to believe them, but you look at your own life and you look at your own sins and you feel like Saul did in this moment. You were in the dust and nothing could ever pull you out of it. And you think, well, maybe this Jesus, maybe he can save others, but not somebody like me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the shame that I carry. And Saul of Tarsus would say to you, have you looked at me lately? As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, God's mercy was shown to me for this reason, to show God's perfect patience for sinners so that you would know there is no one so lost that Christ cannot find them, no one so broken that Christ cannot mend them, and no one whose sins are so great that Christ cannot forgive them, even yours. The same Jesus who picked up Saul from the dirt and said, rise and get up. He says to you, even this morning, rise and get up because I am the one who has loved you and the death I died, I died for you. There is no one so lost that I cannot save them because I'm the one who saves to the uttermost. Even people like Saul. But Jesus isn't content just to save us. Jesus also embraces us, and he does it through the church. Look at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and notice this immediately. Who initiates this encounter? It's not Saul. It's not Ananias. It's Jesus. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, Go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, and understandably, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's saying, Jesus, uh, this Saul of Tarsus guy, I've heard of him. He killed my friends. It's the kind of thing you remember. And he came here with this one explicit purpose, to kill people like me. 
So what do you mean, go to his house and find him and then bless him? And then Jesus, Jesus responds, yeah, that's the same guy, but go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of God. He's going to take the gospel to places it's never gone. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias, hearing the word of the Lord, Ananias departed. And he entered the house. In laying his hands on Saul, he said, and don't miss the beauty of these words, Brother Saul. Not blasphemer, not murderer, not enemy of God, but beloved child of the king and member of the family of God, friend of Jesus. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then Saul rose and was baptized, probably by Ananias, and taking food, again, probably prepared by Ananias, he was strengthened. This part of the story is staggering to me. Jesus could have done any number of things to Saul at this moment. He could have made Saul go on a walk of shame where he blindly enters the city of Damascus and then he has to find the church, beg for their forgiveness and hope that maybe someday they'll accept him. He could have given him a similar vision to the one he does give and said, there's this man named Ananias who will restore your sight, but uh, you need to go find him. Find somebody to lead you by the hand so that you can figure out where he is and then you'll get your sight back. Jesus doesn't do either of those things, does he? Jesus doesn't send Saul looking for the church. Jesus, through Ananias, he sends the church looking for Saul, even as Jesus came looking for him, so that they would be the physical means through which Saul received Christ's embrace. So that this man who is drowning in guilt and shame would not only hear but know that he, there is truly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he would know it not only through the kind words of this new friend, but he would experience and feel it by things as tangible as physical touch. Did you notice it? He lays his hands on someone who hasn't seen for three days. Can you imagine the intimacy that that expresses? The tenderness that that shows? And to feel that touch accompanied by those words, brother Saul. Can you imagine what that ministered to Saul's soul at that moment? And God, he's not finished. Through Ananias, he restores Saul's sight. He fills him with the spirit. And then he gives him the sign and seal of his entry into the people of God, baptism. 
a sign that proclaims the forgiveness of sins and the new creation that Christ brings and proclaims to that man who was once an enemy, you are in fact a child of the living God. Through Ananias, Jesus enfolds Saul into his embrace and communicates to his heart, you are mine. It's a pattern that we see repeated over and over in the New Testament. Jesus delights to embrace his people in and through the church. There's two things that this makes me think of. The first is it impresses on me the incredible weight of the responsibility that Jesus has given us as members of his church. To be those who extend as merciful and gracious a welcome as Ananias extended to Saul. To show mercy to those who are coming to faith for the first time with the same height and depth and length and width as Christ has shown us in his own. And to realize what a weighty responsibility that is because can you imagine what would have happened to Saul if Ananias had refused to do this? But second, it makes me think of all of you who you hear this idea of the church being Christ's embrace and what you feel in your heart, it's not joy, instead it's fear. Because what you've experienced at the hands of the church it's not a welcome and it's not an embrace. It's not the care of someone like Ananias. Instead, it is people who have set up barriers between you and Jesus and have not allowed you entry and have not allowed you in. And that experience, it has made you incredibly nervous about the church. You know, the church, the church is full of sinners and where there's sinners, there's sin. And so it shouldn't surprise us. This past year, We've seen this ugliness play out in national news. We've seen pastors and leaders fall, sometimes spectacularly, sometimes in ways so heinous it makes us wonder if they even know Jesus to begin with. We've seen abuse uncovered in churches of every stripe and of every denomination. And over and over and over again, we see this place that should be so full of beauty and welcome, it is also so full of sin and brokenness. And so I understand why some of you might look at the church and think, I'm ready to give up on this one. But let me give you two reasons why I'm not and why I don't think you should either. The first one's this. Jesus loves his church. And Jesus has not given up on her, and Jesus never will. She is his bride, and she is his beloved. And to love the one is to love the other. But the second, and it flows from the first, is this. Jesus and his church are one. It's what you saw in the words of Jesus in verses four and five. Jesus said to Saul, when you hit the church and you attacked the church, you realize you were attacking me, don't you? There is such an intimate union 
between Jesus and his church that when you strike the one, you strike the other. And that means when you hurt the church, you hurt Jesus. But it also has another implication. One you see in the very next verses that follow, verses 10 to 19, when the church envelops you in her embrace as Ananias does to Saul, it is Jesus who is embracing you too. Because to be embraced by the one is to be embraced by the other. Why does Jesus not want you to give up on his church? It's not because he wants to hurt you. It's not because he wants to see you wounded yet again. It is because through the church, Jesus intends to bless you because it is through the church. It is through the church that Jesus gives us more of his presence than we even had before. When we are received into the membership of a church and we receive by their hands the sign and the seal of our entry into him in baptism, even as Saul does from the hands of Ananias, it is God confirming to your heart that you are his. That as surely as it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, as the water has washed over your body, so too have your sins been washed from you. That as surely as you have undergone those waters, so too have you risen from death to life. And you are in fact a child of the living God. It is Jesus through the church saying, you are mine. To flee the church is to deprive yourself of one of the greatest gifts that Christ has ever offered. Jesus saves, Jesus embraces, but Jesus also does one thing more. Jesus sends. He takes his new friends and he sends them on his mission. You see this in Saul. In verse 19, it says, For some days Saul was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately, not at some time in the future, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? of those who called upon this name, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Calvin once commented that true faith never leaves a man standing still. That's true. You see it right here in Saul. Jesus comes crashing into this man's life and the man who emerges from what looks like a car crash at the beginning, he is someone entirely different on the other side. Jesus doesn't save him and then wrap him up in shrink wrap and then put him on the shelf as a trophy. Jesus saves this man, he embraces this man and then he sends him. Over and over, you see in this text, Jesus saying, Paul, I'm not just saving you from something, I'm saving you to something. Go to the city, you'll be told what you're to do. Ananias, go to this man, why? He's my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. And those promises of God, they are beginning to show fruit right here and to such a degree that the people are looking at Saul and saying, that's not the same man, it can't be. He came here to kill everyone proclaiming Jesus, and now he's proclaiming Jesus better than they were. So much so that we can't argue against him. We don't know what to do. 
This is, this is what Jesus does. You know, I said two weeks ago that God doesn't love what's beautiful. He makes beautiful what he loves. He makes apostles out of persecutors. He makes saints out of sinners. He makes sheep and even shepherds out of wolves. That's Jesus. It's what he's doing here with Saul. And if Saul's story tells us that there's no one so broken that Christ cannot mend them, it also tells us that there's no one so flawed that Christ cannot use them. Jesus takes Saul, a man whose every inhale and exhale was murder against the church, and he turns him into one of the most eloquent and powerful proclaimers of the mercy and grace of Jesus the world has ever known. If God in Jesus can do that through Saul, what might he do in and through you? Jesus saves. Jesus embraces, and Jesus, Jesus sins. Until Jesus returns, there's always gonna be hostility against the church. And at times, that hostility is going to feel overwhelming. But if Acts 9 is true, then we have absolutely nothing to fear. Because Jesus the Jesus who saved Saul, who saved C.S. Lewis and has saved so many of you, he is one who delights to turn his enemies into his friends. And he's doing it now. Close with this. Years ago, I was reading through Augustine's City of God and I came across this quote that just has never left me. And I can't imagine a better summation of what you see right here in Acts 9. Here's what it says. The church must bear in mind that among her very enemies are hidden her future citizens. And when confronted with them, while they're still breathing threats, she must not think it a fruitless task to bear with their hostility until she finds them confessing the faith. Some predestined friends, as yet unknown even to themselves, are concealed among our most open enemies." what Jesus did to Saul. It's what he did to many of us in this room. And it's what he is continuing to do to the present day and he will continue doing until the day of his return. And it's what he might be doing even in you this morning. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men and his compulsion is our liberation. Amen. Gracious Father, we come into the presence of a God whose love is unlike ours. Lord, who has showered us with such mercy in Jesus that there are times, Lord, we, we don't even know what, what to say or how to respond other than to lift our hands and say thank you. And so, Lord, would you take us as those who are lost that you have found? Would you embrace us through your church? Would you make us a people who, as the church, embrace others? But not only that, Lord, would you send us in your power so that even as Saul, Lord, we would be those made new, not just those who've been saved from something, but those saved to something, chosen instruments to expand your kingdom 
by proclaiming the good news of the one who has so loved us. Would you do this now? In the precious name of that Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.